Today's reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 3 and 4. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Yeah, we are moving through the gospel of Matthew this fall and seeing the ways in which the gospel writer Matthew shows us that the eternal God is not just reaching out to, but is breaking into the world through the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And here we come to a crucial point in the life and the ministry of Jesus. We come to the beginning of his public ministry. And Jesus here, he's reached adulthood. He's passed his test in the wilderness, and now he's launching out into the world to show the world who he is. And the question, of course, is how would he do it? Huh? I mean, what would he say? How would he begin? Because if he really is God, then he would have had not just a lifetime, but an eternity to get his first words right. If a presidential candidate, for example, labors over the first line of that speech just to try to lead a nation, how much more would God come to earth, have taken great pains, not just great pains, but would have put much thought into his first line? I mean, if you were God to come to earth, what would you say first? Would you say, hi, everybody, I'm here. Would you say, I really love you guys, great to see you. Maybe, I mean, this whole life in a body thing, it kind of drags, doesn't it? Yeah. What would you say if you were God come to earth looking to save the world and you had to get it right the first time to indicate to your listeners who you were and what you were about? What would you say? Well, what did Jesus say first? Well, he said the same thing that John the Baptist, his cousin, said, and it was one line they both said. They said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Yeah. Now, if you're thinking, I don't get it, 
It doesn't seem all that compelling. Maybe it's because, might I suggest, you may be having a bit of trouble putting yourself in the cultural shoes of the person of that day. See, to them, this statement we just read, oh, it was everything. I mean, this one statement, again, as you saw, it caused public upheaval, a public outcry. I mean, when John the Baptist said it, people went nuts. They lost their minds over it. They, they dropped their lives. They jump in a river when he says, and you say, well, I'd probably do whatever the nice bug-eating man in the sack told me to do too, you know. No. When John and Jesus said this one line, people lost their minds and everything changed. You may think their reaction was out of the blue, but it wasn't. Why did they respond this way? Because Jesus, in that one phrase, he was and is announcing three things, which we'll see as we unpack this one verse today. We're going to see he's announcing a dream come true, a dream come near, and a way into the dream. Let's begin, number one, look at the the dream come true. You see, Jesus, when he announces, when he, he reveals himself to the world, he doesn't just announce himself, he announces something else altogether. He calls it the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. So what is he talking about? Is he just being coy? Is he trying to hide something? No, he's being as clear as he can to the people of his day. They understood exactly what he meant. Because when he said this, and when John the Baptist said this, they said this to and among a people who believed that God himself would establish his kingdom in their midst in their lifetimes. You ask, well, how do they, how could they believe that? Do they have just some sort of, you know, ancient end of the world type scare going on? No, not at all. Let me show you why. The people of Jesus' day were deeply immersed in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, full of passages about God's heart, about God's vision for the earth, about rescuing the world from itself and righting all wrongs, putting down all evil and oppression. And none of these passages were more prominent, more sacred to the Jewish mind than one passage in the book of Daniel chapter 2. Back in Daniel chapter 2, we find the Jewish man, Daniel. You may know the story. Daniel is in exile in the empire of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar, you may know that name, having conquered his land about 600 years before Jesus, had carried off Daniel and a bunch of his friends to exile. And one night here in Daniel chapter 2, 600-ish BC, we find that King Nebuchadnezzar had a disturbing dream. It was more like a nightmare for him. I think you'll see why. King Nebuchadnezzar's nightmare went like this. In his dream, he saw a huge statue of four parts. It had a gold head, a silver body. It had a bronze middle section and thighs and iron legs. And those iron legs turned into a part of clay and iron feet. Then what he saw disturbed him the most, and that happened next, which was out of nowhere in his dream... A rock, really a stone, a small stone, flies in out of nowhere into the picture, strikes the statue on the feet, knocks over the statue. The whole thing crumbles, dissolves, turns to dust. And then that one small stone grows into an enormous great boulder that fills the whole planet. Then the king woke up, and he was so frightened by it, he calls in all the wise men of his day and says, I've had a dream. But I don't just want y'all to tell me what it means. I want you to tell me the dream I had. 
I'm not going to tell you the dream. I want you to tell me not only the dream I had, but what it means. And if you can't, I'll kill you all. Yeah. Now, of course, this was not good for Daniel. And Daniel was a God-fearing Jewish man who had been promoted into being one of the wise men in Nebuchadnezzar's court. And so Daniel, again, being the wise man that he was, he asked for time to consider it. And because he had filled out a blue card at Mosaic, he had a community group, a small group of friends to go back to and pray through the situation. And that night... God revealed to him the dream and its meaning. And then Daniel went back before the king, and this is what he said. He said, King, you had a dream about a great statue with lots of parts to it. And here's what it means. All those sections that you saw represent different kingdoms, and yours is at the top, Nebuchadnezzar. You are the kingdom of gold, but after you will come a silver inferior kingdom, and then another kingdom inferior to that, and then an ironclad cruel kingdom, which will ultimately be divided. And then Daniel said this, chapter 2, verse 44. And he said, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. It shall crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. And of course, everybody asks, always want to know, what were the names of those kingdoms? And I think the best answer is just to ask actually another question, which is, What did the Jews believe? What do they believe? Well, in Jesus' day, they believed that gold was the Babylonian Empire, the silver was the Persian Empire, the bronze was the Greek Empire with Alexander the Great, and the cruel Iron Kingdom was the Roman Empire, which had, in Jesus' day, two factions fighting internally. And Daniel said, in the days of those kings, or which kings? Oh, the kings of the fourth kingdom, that a fifth and final kingdom would come. And Daniel said, oh, this fifth kingdom would be unlike any other kingdom. It would be a supernatural kingdom. It wouldn't be made by hands. It would be one kingdom made up of all peoples. It was something new, not part of the old statue. Then it would be a secure kingdom. It would never give away uh, away to another, never itself be destroyed. It would be a spreading kingdom because it would somehow grow and fill the whole earth. And then Daniel said, oh, it's going to be a certain kingdom. You can count on it. The dream will come true. There will be a new kind of a kingdom, not driven by man's power or domination, but a kingdom from, of heaven will come. And the Jews, of course, they could count. They would count. They knew the kingdoms they lived through. They knew which was which. And they knew and believed they lived in the days of the fourth kingdom of Daniel chapter 2. And now we have Matthew chapter 3, centuries later, John the Baptist and Jesus, they come and they say what? Repent. Why? The kingdom of heaven has come near. And that's why all those Jews, that's why they lost their minds. That's why they jumped in a river, confessed their sins. That's why they lined up in the desert. Even the skeptical Pharisees are coming out, streaming out of the city to get their lives right with God. Why? Oh, because they knew what Jesus meant. What did he mean? Oh, he meant the dream was coming true. The dream was coming true. The kingdom of heaven was near. And by saying this, by declaring this, here's what he's declaring. He was declaring he is the king who has come to rescue you 
and put things right. He is the king under heaven whose loving rule begins to heal your life because he wants earth to look like heaven. You may be saying, well, that sounds kind of nice. I like that healing my life part. That's a good part. But that ruling my life part, I'm not so sure about. I don't know about that stuff. What about the, what's, a, what's what the ruling my life stuff? It sounds like someone telling me what to do. Yeah. If you're thinking that, you're right. Jesus is saying, I have come to tell you, show you how to live. Why? Like this. Because the Bible has always said that the world, which includes your life, my life, they work better when you aren't the one running the show running it the way that you want to. Let me give you two examples. When someone harms you, I mean really hurts you, really hurts you, what should you do? Well, thankfully for me, when I deeply wronged my wife on our honeymoon by insulting her after she beat me 10 times in a row at a card game, <laughs> she, she got up in tears, slammed the cards down, slammed the door and said, I will never play another game with you ever again. Now, that's like a, a death sentence to a competitive guy. But uh, thankfully for me and for foolish husbands everywhere, the Bible has a message. It has a rule, a law. The Bible says not just that you should forgive that person, but that you must forgive that person. Why? Otherwise, you run into your life, you might allow your anger to consume you, right? You, it consume that other person, perhaps. Maybe it's just through the coldness, the distance in your relationship. Maybe it's some behind-the-back character assassination where you grind them down, you make them pay you back over time. Maybe you even murder that person, right? But when you obey the king, when you bring your life under his loving rule, what happens? The relationship begins to heal. See? Forgiveness, shalom, the way the world ought to be. Now, how about another area? Uh, your financial life. The Bible says not that you should, but that you must give your money away and be generous. Why? Because if you don't, and you hoard your resources, and by the way, no one ever thinks they're hoarding no one ever calls it that. We always think I'm just being cautious, right? I'm taking care of my future, right? If all we do is keep our money in our own hands and account, the community around us begins to decay. Our hearts begin to get calcified. Our spiritual arteries get clogged. And over time, the grace of God seems fainter and fainter to us. See, to obey God's rule and law and be generous brings life to the world and you. And I don't know the situation that you're in today what you've gotten yourself into or what's happened to you. But listen to me. What will begin to heal your life, your situation is always, always by allowing Jesus to be king in that area. It may get tougher at first. It may get stickier at first. But in the long run, it will bring healing into your life. See, the stickier it seems, hear me, the simpler the solution is. Allow Jesus to be king right there. Do the right thing. Let the chips fall. And watch your situation turn around. He could turn your nightmare into a dream. Into a dream. See, that whole thing, it was a nightmare for Nebuchadnezzar, but it was a dream for Daniel. Why? Oh, because for one, God wasn't king. For the other, 
God was. It all depends on who the king is, you or him. The kingdom is wherever the king is, so let him rule in that area and watch his healing power begin to flow. That's a dream come true. Let's look at number two. It's not just that, but it's also a dream come near. Dream come near. He didn't just say the kingdom of heaven is come, but what? He said it's come where? Near. It's interesting. Yeah. He didn't just mean because he was there. It meant he was bringing something, birthing something that the people in his day didn't get, but we can see, and that's this. When Jesus said, my kingdom's coming near, he's saying his kingdom hasn't come fully, but only partially, and here's why. See, when those people who heard Jesus, heard John the Baptist say the kingdom's come near, they, they were looking at, and they remembered Nebuchadnezzar's dream, but they didn't really get it fully. See, they read all those messianic passages like that, and they, they looked at what the Davidic king would be. That's why they called Jesus the son of who? David. They, they thought, oh, he's bringing kingdom in, right? Power, conquest, overturning now, yes. Oh, but they didn't get where they, it said there would also be a suffering servant, someone who would himself be pierced and crushed, and through the crushing, he would redeem the people. They didn't get it. They, asked, they thought, well, what kind of a king dies? How's that kind of story supposed to help me? Right. But what Jesus says and shows us is this, that he's the king who comes not just once, but twice. He's come once in mercy, in grace, in tenderness, and one day he will come back to rule and to judge the living and the dead and make the kingdom not just near, but full and fully present. That's what he promised. And that's what he said. That's what he means. And this is why, this is how it's just beyond important for you to understand this. This means that we live in something theologians call the overlap of the ages, Overlap of the ages, in which the old way of living, the old life, uh, the old kingdom, oh, it's, it's still around. Life as a result of the fall, it's still here, and you know this. But yet there's a new world, he's saying, that's here, a new kingdom that's growing in the middle of the old one, like a plant that grows in the middle of the desert that begins to bloom. See, is the desert still there? Yeah, but it's beginning to look different. There's something growing in the middle. It becomes less deserty over time, more flowery over time. Why? Because two things are overlapping, two kingdoms. One is the world as it is, one as it is to come. We live in the kingdom of God now, but not yet fully present. Jesus began his reign. One day he'll return to complete it. Therefore, he's opened up a new space, an overlap of ages that we live in. And Christians, therefore, you and I, are new space kind of people. New space kind of people. We live in a new space. How then, question, does that affect the way we live? Let me give you seven implications, two along, five or short. What does the overlap of the ages mean for us, the way we live? It means we are to be people first who are a blessing to the nations. Blessing to the nations. When I was in college two or three years ago, I met a guy, crazy guy, from Beaumont, Texas, named Matt. And Matt was a classic college athlete. He partied, he, he chased women. But then he blew his knee out. Blew his knee out. He was at the Catholic. He was running track there. And his whole identity crumbled. Now, fortunately for him, he had a teammate who was a Christian and invited him, brought him to an every nation campus meeting at the University of Houston where Jesus interrupted his life. 
Man had begun to question God's existence, had a philosophy professor who was his aim to make him doubt and question his faith. That was happening. Matt said, God, if you're real, I need to know. Show yourself. And that night, Jesus came and showed up. Matt put his head down. He heard Jesus say to him, I'm here. What are you going to do with me? Yeah. Matt began to weep. He surrendered his life to Jesus. Then Matt began to preach everywhere to everyone about the kingdom of heaven. He led my wife, Carrie, to Christ. And the next year, Matt and I were roommates. Fast forward 15 years. Matt's been this church planner, campus missionary. And then one day in the shower, Jesus shows up again and says, I have treasures for you in Marseille, France. Well, Matt didn't speak the language, had never been there. So what does he do? Of course, the only thing he could do, right? He packs his wife and four kids up, moves over there, learns a language. He's planted a church and is leading French people to Jesus. Why? Why, why, why? Hear this. It's because the church, Matt's church, it didn't just have a mission. God's mission in the world gave birth to a church, see, to bring all peoples back to them. Our church doesn't just have a mission. God's great mission in history needs a church, has a church, establishes churches, which is to bring the kingdom of heaven near to people in the city, which, by the way, implies one thing you can see it meant for Matt, and it meant all the way back in Genesis to Abraham. God said, go, go. Leave where you are, and I'll make you a blessing to to what? To your people, to your family? No. All nations, all nations. See, your life, hear me, it'll always feel more blessed, more full, far richer when you're going and on God's mission. And it might mean leaving the nation one day like I meant for my friend Matt. Thank God I hadn't meant that for me yet. I get to live in Austin, Texas and eat Tex-Mex and barbecue with all of you, right? But it may mean going short-term trip to Vallejo, like you heard on the announcement, or with a group of people who are going from here to Kajeo uh, Gardens in Africa to reignite one of the poorest places in the world. But bringing blessing always means somehow going, going, right? And I'm, I'm so thrilled with many of you. A couple weeks ago, we had almost 30 people say, I want to be a mentor in a local elementary school because Jesus has remembered me I'm going to remember someone who is also at risk. He's, Jesus has reached into my life, going to reach into somebody else's life. And uh, this week I went in to, to see uh, uh, my, the kid I mentor over at, at Live Oak, and I walked in, and the guy behind the desk there, when I walk in, he looks up and says, another Mosaic volunteer? <laughs> I said, I'm not just another volunteer. I'm the pastor. I'm kidding. I'm, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. People like that, right? Don't you know who I am? I'm kidding. And I, don't, I said, that's right. That's right, another one. It's what we do. What we do. We go. But it's got to start somewhere. Maybe it's you just going into a community group or going into leading a group. Or some of you have gone into MKIS. Or you go into your workplace with a mindset, I'm here to bring the kingdom of heaven near to people. To be a blessing to the nations, we have to go. Second. We're to be people who are a blessing to our nation, our nation. Let me tell you what I believe, among other things, we, this church, Mosaic, has an opportunity to do in our lifetime. It has the opportunity to contribute to one of the major issues which faces our nation, which is the issue of racism. You say, well, we've talked about this before. Why are we talking about it again? Listen, 
we'll, I'll quit talking about it when the Bible quits talking about it. Go back and read the New Testament through this lens. Go back and read how many books are all about, fundamentally about, Jew and Gentile reconciliation. It's stunning. It's stunning. It's what Acts is all about. I mean, the disciples are floored. They can't believe that Jesus would love another race as much as them. 17 years after his ascension, they're still fighting over it. Council of Jerusalem. Should we let them in or not? It's all about racial reconciliation. Go read Ephesians. It announces skin color cannot, must not define the Christian. It says now there's one new humanity in the world. Go read Galatians, 1 Corinthians, Romans, Google, Jew, Gentile. Watch. It's all about reconciling people who had never been reconciled before in the history of the world. And if the gospel is, and what God announced, Paul says, to Abraham in Galatians 3, that God loves all people and all nations, that must mean the first thing he begins to bring into the overlap of the ages is an end to racism. It's an end to racism. See. When I was, a, I was a senior in college, listen, I was pretty clueless on how to even begin this, how to reach someone who didn't look like me, but I knew God had a mission for me in the world. Wanted to bring Jesus to those around me. And I met a freshman uh, on the basketball team there at U of H named Charles. And Charles was a great young man, fine guy, loved God, African-American guy but didn't have a group of Christians around him. So my friend Matt and I began to befriend him, encourage him to invite his roommates to our campus group, but they didn't want to come. And Charles was nice about it, but he basically said, the cultural gap is too great. They don't feel comfortable going. And I got fired up. I thought, well, what can I do, right? Well, if they're not going to come see me, I'm going to go see them. And so one night, Matt and I, we just rolled up into the apartments, knocked on their door and invited ourselves in, and they kind of politely ignored us all night. I don't know why. Maybe it's because we invited him to go fishing and camping with us that next weekend. I'm kidding, kidding. We didn't do that. I know that's not good. Just kidding. Regardless, though, we weren't getting through. Then I got up to use the restroom. And I had an idea, where a lot of good ideas, I guess, come from. Uh, I went back and I asked Charles for a sponge. And he looked at me, kind of funny, but he handed me one. He, he was probably thinking, this must be another weird thing the white guys do, right? I mean, I asked for a sponge. But I went back. And with no gloves on, began to clean that bathroom. Now, it may have been clean at one point. But like a lot of college athletes' bathrooms, it just had been a while, say. And Matt began to check on me, saw what I was doing. He got in the swing of it. He grabbed the vacuum, began to vacuum the whole place. We cleaned the kitchen, dusted. Uh, and then when they began to feel, I don't know, awkward about the whole thing, they said, hey, can we help? We said, no, you guys, just go back to watching the game. And we took out the trash, made their beds, and we left. Now, do you know who showed up the next week at the Bible study? All four of those guys. That's right. Not because we're cool. We even knew what we were doing. Not because I'm trying to be, hear me, the white savior, right? Because I'm just trying to be a blessing to them. I'm trying to show them we love them. We want to be their friend. And Jesus loves them too. Did we say or do everything perfectly? I'm sure we didn't. 
even have the right motivation. Maybe, maybe not. And we won't in this church, we won't say everything right as we seek to reconcile people. But love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers the gap. And humble service towards people who aren't like us or who we don't understand is always the way forward. Let's not grow weary, church, in this area in our church. We can do something extraordinary for the world by doing something loving for one another. We can do something extraordinary for the world by doing something loving for one another. So many implications of the overlap of the ages. Five more quickly, 90 seconds. There's a social implication. We, we love and we serve the poor, right? To show them there's not just a desert around them. There's a garden blooming. There's a, a new world growing in the middle of the old one. There's an ecological implication. We can't just trash the world. Colossians 1 says that all things were made, not for you. All things, created things, were made for Jesus. For Jesus. And the cross will reconcile not just people, but created things as well in the end. There's an economic implication because doing your job well, being a great employer, being a great employee, uh, show there's a world beyond just greed and self, right? There's a supernatural implication. We should expect miracles and signs and gifts of the Holy Spirit to be in our midst. Why? Because there's a kingdom that's come. It's near, right? And there's a personal implication because realizing you live in this open space, helps keep you from growing weary as you go to the nations and our nation. It keeps you stabilized. You don't get too up emotionally because you realize there's still a fallen world around you. But you don't get too down either because there's a new kingdom breaking in all the time. I can realize, yes, there's sin in the world and leaders are going to make mistakes and fall, and, but there's grace in the world. Don't worry, I haven't done anything. Okay. Now, there's grace in the world, which means there's never a life beyond God's repair. The overlap of the ages, it means there's a garden blooming in the desert. It means there's a dream in the midst of the nightmare. And ultimately, thankfully, Jesus shows us the way in. Number three, he tells us there's a way into this kingdom. What is it? Oh, it's the first word he ever preaches to you. He says, repent. Repent repent. Hmm. Why? Let's see. This crucial moment in Jesus's life also captured over in the gospel of Mark. Same moment. Mark puts it like this. Jesus says the kingdom of God has come near. Verse 15. Repent and believe the good news. First, let's ask what's repentance. Repentance is turning away from one thing, turning towards another. Therefore, to get into the kingdom What is Jesus saying we turn towards? He said, believing what? The good news, the euangelion, the literally the gospel. Believe the gospel. Why would he say that? The good news. Did you know that when Caesar Augustus was coronated on that day, it was announced with the phrase, the beginning of the gospel, the euangelion of Caesar Augustus. Hmm, Why? Because this was supposed to be, in Caesar's mind, I guess, good news for the people, right? But Jesus, oh, he co-ops Caesar's line. He takes it. He plucks it from the headlines, applies it to himself, and says, oh, you think Caesar said he's got a gospel? Oh, man, that's something else. I've heard it all now. I've got a gospel. I've got good news. Repent and believe my 
good news. What does this mean? Oh, he's saying this. He's saying, I am different, Jesus is, I am different than any other religious teacher and leader you'll ever hear. He's saying he's utterly different. Why? Oh, here's how. Because every other religious founder, teacher came along and based their system, not on news, but on advice. On advice. Sure, some claimed miracles, but you're not saved by the miracles. You're saved by obeying the advice, right? Walking the eightfold path, right? Obeying the five pillars, the ten commandments. You're only saved, brought to the afterlife, nirvana, if you obey the advice. But Jesus didn't come and say, oh, repent, I've got some good advice for you. Ten steps to a better life. He said, I've got good news for you. Which means this. The core of Christianity is not something you do. It's something that's been done for you. So therefore, what would someone need to repent from? Any kind of advice-based life. Any kind of advice-based life. Anything you do, someone does, to live in such a way that trusts something, some kind of advice, rather than Jesus. Conservative moral people say, especially from smaller cities, from traditional families, what really matters is, in the end, being good, and doing what's right. Why? Because that's what makes them feel good. It sounds like good advice, right? And they look down their noses at people who don't live like this. But irreligious people say, especially from larger urban areas, hey, what really matters is not about what doing, doing what someone else told you, but about following your own path, following your own heart, discovering who you are. And they look down their noses at the moral people, the uptight people who insist on keeping the rules. But both of these, they're just two sides of the same coin, two halves of the human heart, which is always trying to tell itself it's fine as it is apart from God and therefore better than someone else. Moral people say, I'm good because I obey Immoral people say, I'm good because I don't. I choose my own path. But Jesus says to all, you're all lost. You all must repent and believe my good news. Who did he say repent to? To the Pharisees, the most uptight, rule-keeping people who had ever lived. He says to the moral, repent of your good works. To the immoral, repent of your bad works. Because both those ways are still advice-based lives. And the moment you say, oh God, I repent, I turn away from following some set of advice, either moral advice, immoral advice. I turn my back on all of that. And I just believe your good news, Jesus. That's when you begin to enter the kingdom. And what are you doing when you do that? Oh, hear this. You're turning your back on the statue, on the statue, any kind of man-centered kingdom And you're putting your faith in the stone, in the rock, not made by human hands. That's growing and will fill the whole earth. See, all kingdoms, including yours, like dust, like those kingdoms, are going to fall and crumble and be turned to nothing. But this kingdom, this rock, not made by human hands, has come, will come again, and the dream will come fully alive one day. Therefore, friend, repent and believe the good news. And when you ask Jesus uh, in your life, you're not just asking him into your heart. You're asking him to receive you into his kingdom. He didn't come into your kingdom. You come into his. Like the thief on the cross, remember me when you come into your kingdom. See, And when you do that, 
And we'll look at how you do that in deeper ways in a couple weeks. You're saying what C.S. Lewis said. He said, this is what it's like when someone discovers this kingdom. He said, I've come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now.